Good evening and welcome to the Sydney Ideas Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. I'm extremely pleased to co-present the first event in the 2010 Sydney Ideas Series with the Institute for Sustainable Solutions at the University of Sydney. Professor Michael Oppenheimer of Princeton University is here in Sydney as a guest of the Institute and I'd like to thank them for making him available to join the Sydney Ideas Program tonight. The lecture tonight will run for about 50 minutes and will be followed by a 30-minute question and answer session. We have two microphones set up on stands at the bottom of the aisles, you'll see, so please do come down and use those microphones for your questions after the lecture. Tonight's event is also being filmed by ABC TV Big Ideas, the ABC's multi-platform talks program. You can watch Big Ideas on ABC One on Tuesdays and Wednesdays at 11am or online anytime at abc.net.au backslash bigideas. The next event in the Sydney Ideas program is an In Conversation with US journalist and war correspondent Mark Dana this Thursday evening. This event is part of our more informal Sydney Ideas Open series that will be held at the Law School foyer on the university's main campus. Then two weeks later, we have Dr James Hansen, another very well-known US climate change scientist, and a science historian, Robert Olby, talking about the life of Francis Crick. Both of these events are here at the Seymour Centre, and more information is available online at the Sydney Ideas website. But for tonight, I'm now very pleased to welcome Sam Moston, Director of the Institute for Sustainable Solutions here at the University of Sydney, who will introduce Professor Oppenheimer and his work to you. Thank you, Sam. Thanks very much, Meredith, and can I also thank Sydney Ideas for partnering with the Institute for tonight's presentation. I'd also like to welcome all of you for coming along tonight and in doing so, also acknowledge that we are gathered on the traditional land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. This is the first public lecture for 2010 for the Institute for Sustainable Solutions at the University of Sydney, and it's my first event since being appointed director of the Institute late last year. As the name implies, we're focused on providing solutions to some of the complex sustainability issues we face. I came from the business community to join the university in this endeavour and am reminded every day across this campus and beyond just how critical our thinkers, our researchers, our teachers and students are in the understanding of our world and finding new paths to support the future we all desire. I'm also constantly reminded of the need for connection. One of the goals of the Institute is to create and nurture cross-disciplinary and cross-sector research teaching and advocacy. We aim to have a real impact in these areas where we can create unique partnerships, utilising the full potential of the intellectual and creative capacity of the university and the myriad partners across society. This year, I'm delighted that we've launched our Masters of Sustainability program and we intend to deepen our teaching capacity in this area. We're open to your ideas about projects and collaborations and welcome your curiosity and your ideas. One of our roles is to present speakers and ideas and encourage informed debate on some of the big sustainability issues that we face as individuals, as communities, as nations and as the world. 
Which brings me to tonight's lecture and the reason that so many of you have come out tonight to see our guest speaker speak, Professor Michael Oppenheimer. And it's a real pleasure to introduce Professor Oppenheimer, although I can take absolutely no credit for the decision to invite him to speak to us tonight. That credit goes to Professor Rosemary Lister, who was one of the co-directors of the Institute before my arrival, who back in 2008 suggested that Michael would make an excellent speaker for the university, and I thank her for her foresight. Professor Michael Oppenheimer is the Albert G. Milbank Professor of Geosciences and International Affairs in the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University. He has an illustrious scientific career, both as an academic and an environmental advocate. Before joining Princeton in his current role, he spent 20 years as chief scientist with the American Environmental Defense Fund, and he continues to act as their science advisor to this day. He is also an adjunct professor at the NYU School of Law. Professor Oppenheimer has been involved in the work of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, for many years and served as the lead author on both the third and fourth assessment reports. His own research focuses on atmospheric science, but he spends a lot of his time looking at both the science and the public policy governing climate change. His teaching incorporates climate science, policymaking and the law. And what a time for him to be joining us here in Australia and to be talking about climate science, policy responses and potential solutions. When Rosemary Lister first invited Michael, Australians were keen to act on climate change and trusted the science and scientists. Today we see declining science um, trust and a declining public engagement on this topic for a variety of reasons and a persistent criticism of climate scientists and in particular the work of the IPCC. It would be fair to say that many in our community today are just deeply confused, don't know who to trust, and I think our governments at all levels have now acknowledged that they have not communicated well on this issue, whether it's climate change mitigation, CO2 reduction, the role of various market mechanisms in stabilising our climate, or indeed the looming challenge of adaptation. In fact, I thought it was interesting that last week, in response to Penny Wong's uh, climate Coastal Adaptation Forum. The Australian had a photo of a long-term Bondi resident at Bondi Beach uh, saying that he had seen no evidence in his life of any coastal erosion or climate change at Bondi. The day after, one day after, a bit further back in the paper, um, a young mother with her daughter, also Bondi residents, also enjoying the beach, said she was deeply concerned about climate change and erosion of Bondi Beach for her daughter a completely separate parallel universe operating in the community in our engagement with the issue and our understanding about the science. In addition to the criticism of scientists, there's also been a complaint that scientists haven't communicated enough or that they've failed to engage the public on the topic. I think it's a very easy criticism to make. It disregards that the people involved are just like us. They care about the issue and they work hard at their discipline and disregards the fact that scientists don't train to be communicators. It also fails to suggest that journalists or opinion makers don't understand science enough. And I think we should reflect on that as we read some of the criticism of science. I've had the great privilege of spending the last few days with Professor Oppenheimer, and it is um, a remarkable insight that he brings to us tonight. I think you'll appreciate as you listen to the science that we have a major issue to deal with and to confront um, and that we often need to challenge our own worldview when we listen to the science. There's a difference, I think, between climate science and climate change. 
Climate change has very rapidly moved from a science issue to a social and cultural issue, upon which I think we hang our biases, our worldview and our hopes and our fears. Tonight you'll hear from a leading climate scientist about the science, about what this man has studied for his entire career, what he understands by the science and what is contained in the IPCC reports about the climate science. How you react to that and think about climate change, I think, is an issue for you um, and for our policymakers and politicians to think carefully about. But I'm delighted to welcome to the stage to talk to us about climate science, policy and potential solutions, Professor Michael Oppenheimer. Thank you. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to be here, and it's very interesting coming from a country, um, the United States, where the climate issue uh, truly is on the back burner, far behind um, the uh, concern about our economy and also uh, the health care issue, which we seem incapable of dealing with. Uh, and it's interesting to come here where um, there's still a rather intense discussion going on uh, about climate change, intense but not always enlightening, I'm afraid. And what I'd like to do today, tonight, is to uh, go back to basics, uh, go back to the basic science, uh, look at the elements, the key elements of the problem, in hopes of shedding some light, maybe uh, contributing in a minor way to uh, quieting the discussion in, in a little bit and leading it in more rational directions, and then toward the end, tease out what I think of the, uh, the policy implications of all of this. So uh, without further ado, and hoping that I don't have a nervous breakdown myself in operating the computer, which sometimes happens, um, let me talk about where this problem comes from and what it really is about. So certain gases that exist naturally in the atmosphere, called the greenhouse gases, are transparent to sunlight, which comes through and warms Earth. Uh, but these same gases trap heat that would otherwise escape into space. That's what we've got here, sunlight, heat, uh, sunlight coming through, warming Earth's surface, trying to radiate that heat back into space, but some of it here being trapped and returned to Earth. Uh, that's the greenhouse effect. It's been understood for about 200 years. And it's a good thing. Without the greenhouse effect, Earth would be about uh, 30 degrees Celsius colder than it is. It would be a frozen desert. Life as we know it would never have evolved, and we all wouldn't be around here to have to have these terrible arguments and discussions about what to do about global warming. We can find out a lot about these greenhouse gases by going to the poles, the, the big ice sheets in particular in Antarctica and Greenland, where scientists go and they put up installations that look like oil derricks, they drill down and they retrieve sections of ice cores that when you add them up are, uh, you know, can be up to a couple of kilometers long of ice. And they take this into the lab and in, under very clean, pristine conditions, they shave the ice cores. And in those ice cores are little, are little air bubbles. The reason the air bubbles are there is because when the snow fell that formed the ice before it got compacted, little bits of air, if you imagine a snowflake, Ever seen a snowflake? I guess some of you probably haven't, but uh, I've seen too many of them uh, this winter. And, and you know, it, it traps the air bubbles between the points. The air sort of finds itself and consolidates, the little pockets of air consolidate into bubbles. And then um, when the whole thing freezes, the bubbles are trapped, and then that's 
The oldest ice we have is almost a million years old. The oldest ice we've analyzed is about 800,000 years old. So along comes Homo sapiens sapiens at the end of this long journey, drills up these ice cores in his brilliance, and finds this, these bubbles, which are an archive of what the atmosphere looked like 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, as I said, up to 800,000 years ago. And so from that archive, we can tell something about the history of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And focusing here on the last 10,000 years, here's 10,000 years ago, here's today, these, this is the level of carbon dioxide in the air samples, the samples of the old atmosphere coming up to today. And on this rather con, uh, 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 contra contracted scale, you'll see the carbon dioxide levels were fairly constant for most of the last 10,000 years. And I use 10,000 years because that's the period since the last major glaciation of Earth. Um, and we know there haven't been major climate swings over that period, not on a global scale anyway. And we come to here, and all of a sudden, the thing takes off like a rocket ship. And if you expand the scale, look at only the last 200 years or so. Here's 1800, here's today. You see that, again, there's a, 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 just a little bit of an increase here, probably due to deforestation and a little bit of fossil fuel burning. And then the, the, the curve takes off. And this is a unique phenomenon, and, and there are very few things in this problem I'm going to say I'm certain of, but one thing I'm going to say I'm certain of is that carbon dioxide and the levels of other greenhouse gases have changed, and that that change is due to human activity. We just don't have any doubt about it. There's several lines of evidence that lead in that direction. Uh, the buildup is connected primarily, but not entirely, with the burning of fossil fuels. And I want to say there are other greenhouse gases, both naturally and uh, due to the human addition to the atmosphere. Uh, methane is an important greenhouse gas. That's, you know it perhaps as natural gas or swamp gas. It has many natural sources, but it also has human-made sources. If you open a coal mine, some methane leaks out, for instance. Uh, nitrous oxide, which you would know of la as laughing gas, has many natural sources, but it has human-made sources, for instance, when you spread fertilizer in agricultural production. So, and there are a few other gases which are worth um, paying attention to, but I don't have time to go into it here. And here you see the total, since 1970, the bar charts indicate the total global emissions of all the, what are called the long-lived greenhouse gases, the ones that hang around the atmosphere for at least 10 years after emission. There are some short-lived ones as well. And you see there's been a very steady increase. The pie chart, I'm going to say what I say to my students, shut those cell phones off. Uh, the pie chart shows how much each of these gases contribute to the current global warming effect in the atmosphere, essentially. And you'll see that carbon dioxide from the fossil fuel sector is about 60% of the current contribution. Um, the, by the way, let me show you one other thing on that slide. There's also a big chunk here, about 15 to 20% of carbon dioxide and of the greenhouse that comes from hunting and burning of forests in the tropics in places like Brazil, for instance. Uh, what is the industrial source of these gases in terms of you know, the machinery that it comes from? Well, the biggest growth is in electric, the electric power sector. Here's 1970, here's today. And also transport, particularly road transport, but also into air transport is increasing rapidly as well as a source of these gases. And the final point I want to make on the emissions is that this is no longer a problem of the big developed OECD economies like EU, 
Europe, um, EU, Australia, the US, and Japan. It's now become a problem which is be being dominated by the developing countries, the non-OECD countries, which are the red bars, the, Earth, the developed countries are the blue bars. And you can see in recent years, the, uh, re the red bar has gotten bigger than the blue bar. And we see that, there's a, that in the future, the ratio is expected to increase. So that this one lesson to take away here is, if you think you want to solve the, the greenhouse gas problem, you simply cannot do it without engaging the big developing countries like China and India. Now, okay, I've shown you that the greenhouse gases are increasing. Why do we think, and, and I argued that greenhouse gases warm Earth, so the greenhouse problem arises because as humans add more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, they add a greater and greater potential to warm Earth. But how do we know that some warming actually, uh, what's our evidence that this has actually caused War, will actually cause warming in the future. And here I present more evidence from those ice cores. You, not, the, the red is carbon dioxide uh, in, uh, over time, going back 800,000 years from the ice core taken from near the South Pole. And the blue is methane levels, and the black is the temperature of the atmosphere from which the snow fell that consolidated into the ice cores. If you want to know how we know that, it has something to do with the isotope ratios in the water in the ice. We can talk about it later. It's a, it's a complex detail. But you notice very interestingly that both the carbon dioxide and the methane and the temperature above Antarctica went up and down naturally over time. That tells you two things. It tells you, first of all, and by the way, the ups and downs are very closely correlated. It tells you two things. It tells you there's something that can change the climate naturally, at least over very long periods of time. And we, we're pretty sure we know what that is. The attitude of Earth's orbit relative to the sun changes over time. That changes the amount of sunlight reaching one or the other hemisphere. That uh, instigates or triggers some warming of the Earth and also triggers a change in the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And then the amount of greenhouse gases further amplifies the warming. There's a consistent picture, although we're not 100% we're not sure of all the intermediate steps, that you cannot explain the changes in the, in the Antarctic temperature between, say, a warm period like this one we're in now or the previous one 125,000 years ago and a cold period, which in the Northern Hemisphere we know as the Ice Ages, without invoking the change in the amount of greenhouse gases. And if you count the amount of warming that should have occurred due to the carbon dioxide building up and the methane building up, it's, a good, it's a, um, consistent with the amount of warming that occurred during one of these transitions from a, gl inter a glacial period into an interglacial period. So there's a picture that fits together there, and that gives us confidence that climate that builds up uh, a buildup in greenhouse gases will cause a change in the climate. I want to say, you might ask, all right, so if climate changes naturally, why are we worried about a human-made addition? It's because although these swings are pretty big, they happen very slowly. And we're in the middle of an interglacial or warm period here. And because we know quite a lot about the orbit of Earth around the sun, we can say with some confidence that we would not be falling into another ice age like this for something like 10, 20, 30,000 years. But we will change the climate due to global warming, due to the human-made buildup of the greenhouse gases over the course of the next 100 years if we don't stem the emissions. The other thing to notice here is that this is today's level of carbon dioxide, and it's about 
30% above any level recorded in those ice cores for the last 800,000 years. And there is other evidence that suggests that actually carbon dioxide is now higher than it's been in several million years, and several million years ago, Earth was a significantly warmer place. So this fits together as a picture which suggests strongly that we, are, are, we have already primed the atmosphere here for a significant warming. Now let me step back a minute and give you some generalizations about what we know. Very important, and a thing that distinguishes this problem from nearly any other political problem that our leaders have to deal with, if you think of it as a political and not just a scientific problem, these emissions are very long-lived. Some of the um, carbon dioxide that was emitted from the engine of the first automobiles that were driven over 100 years ago is mixing through your lungs as you sit here and breathe. Some of the carbon dioxide we emit today will still be in the atmosphere, about 20% or so of the emissions, a thousand years from now, and we, unless we're clever and we find some way to suck it out of the atmosphere, which is physically possible, but at least today incredibly expensive. So the decisions we make today to control or not control emissions will have implications for people living on the planet for many, many, many generations to come and are, at least from today's point of view, effectively effectively irreversible. And we also know that climate changes are already underway and that more more are to come even if we start reducing emissions now, and I'll show you why later. And this has all been known for some time. The recent developments of the last few years have amplified scientific uh, concern about this problem. First of all, Uh, As the question of climate change has focused the scientific community, we've started also paying attention to the question of how human beings are able to adapt to the the risks involved with the kinds of climate extremes that global warming is expected to bring. So, for instance, it's very likely that as the world warms, there'll be more intense heat waves. How good are we at adapting to heat waves? Much worse than we really should be or could be, and I'll give you an example later. Heat waves kill people. People die in heat waves. We could avoid it. We're not very good. We don't live up to our potential to adapt. Uh, In in my country and in the north of this country, tropical storms are a big issue. Um, Hurricanes in the Atlantic Basin are expected to increase in intensity though not frequency, in a warmer world. And we know from the examples that we've had in the United States in the last few years, most notably Hurricane Katrina, which probably had nothing to do with global warming, but provides an analog for what we might have to deal with more more in the future. We know we're not very good at anticipating, even with a storm that everybody was saying for several decades would eventually show up and do severe damage to the city. And we sort of sat there and did nothing about it. So there are demonstrated limits on our ability to adapt to just the kinds of extreme events we are expecting more of. And when one looks at all the full range of not just extreme events, but all the impacts of global warming, which I'll go into in a minute, there's become sort of a consensus in the scientific community. I want to be careful about it. It's not a full consensus but it's been uh, it's sort of a best estimate of where the risks really start to pile up. We don't know exactly what happens at what level of warming, but we have a, a general idea. And if you put down what we know, and I'll show you later, we see that there's a kind of concatenation of risk if you uh, raise Earth's temperature above about two degrees warming. And the governments have recently taken up this as a preliminary idea of a target for global warming policy, that Earth shouldn't warm more than a couple of degrees at most, 
And I'll show you later that it's actually unlikely we're going to meet that target, unfortunately. And finally, the window of opportunity to avoid such a warming is closing, and it's going to be difficult primarily because we've, or we're rather late out of the box and starting to do something about the problem. Uh, this is a little bit of a complicated graph, but it goes to the point I made about the long lifetime for the accumulation. Uh, I don't want to go into great detail, but if you just let emissions zip up like this, this, this curve is the business-as-usual curve for emissions without doing anything to stop them. Then, in the year 2150, now that, is that 2150 or 2100? It's 2100. You all of a sudden bring emissions to a halt. Stop everything. Shut down every factory. Shut down every, throw all the automobiles in the ocean. Stop deforestation completely. Impossible to do, obviously. No carbon dioxide emissions. You notice that that blip still keeps carbon dioxide emissions above the, the uh, pre-industrial level, which is way down here, way out for the full millennium. In other words, there is no way to, uh, that we have today to practically reverse levels of carbon dioxide, and the natural processes like dissolution in the ocean take it out of the atmosphere very slowly so that the, the uh, bulge created by industrialization, even if we managed to get off uh, fossil fuels by the end of the century, would leave a hangover which would take the full millennium to disappear. It's in that sense that I'm indicating that this is effectively, there is an irreversibility in the problem. So now, those are the general principles. Let's talk a little bit about um, what we are able to say, see today in terms of actual changes in the climate. This is uh, the te Earth's temperature data uh, taken by thermometric readings, thermometers, for the last 150 years or so. And um, you notice there's a lot of jiggle-jaggle in the curve, but in general, Earth has been warming. And so, but I want to you know, be clear that in um, the process of, uh, of there being an overall warming trend, there are periods where Earth's temperature has actually uh, you know, stop warming or even decline for short periods of time by a few tenths of a degree. The overall warming is about three quarters of a degree Celsius. So you should be aware if you hear statements like, well, it hasn't warmed during this decade, well, so what? That's happened many times in the recorded, uh, in the temperature record, but it doesn't change the fact that there's a long-term upward trend. Similarly, the warming of Earth is associated with an increase in the sea level. This is probably the most, in my mind, the most outstanding and troubling impact. And that happens for several reasons, three mostly. Number one, mountain glaciers, which are shriveling away almost everywhere, and which I'll show you later, uh, when they melt, the water has to go somewhere, winds up in the ocean. Um, number two, water, like most fluids, when you heat it, it expands. So just the volume of the ocean, even if the mass didn't change, is increasing. And thirdly, we've discovered fairly recently that the major ice sheets, parts of Antarctica, parts of Greenland, are frittering away at the edges. The, the peripheries are starting to melt, and there isn't enough extra snowfall happening in the middle of the cold ice sheets to compensate. So in general, sea level has been rising rather steadily, for the last 150 years or so. There is some question about when the sea level rise actually began, but it's fairly clear that it accelerated sometime during the era of the buildup of the greenhouse gases. We know this is now certain. I mean, we know this 
from several different instrumentation methods. They used to measure sea level by putting little flotation devices on the ocean, and there was always some doubt about how accurate that was because you couldn't put flotation de devices along all coastlines. There wasn't global coverage. You may see this little red curve here. What happened about 15 years ago is we finally sent a satellite up which could get true global coverage of the oceans. And you'll notice that the satellite indications of how fast sea level are rising were smack on the curve, which had already been determined by the flotation devices or tide gauges. So we now have a very comprehensive picture of sea level rise on a global basis. And finally, this, the snow and ice lines, you know, down here you don't have to think about them, but in North America we think about snow lines. If you drive a stake in the ground in the middle of North America, at the coldest part of winter where the, the snowpack has advanced as far as uh, it, its deepest into the middle of the continent. And if you marked every year where that edge was, it would, it would jump around a little bit, but the trend basically is a gradual decline in the snow-covered area. So snow, ice, sea temperature, sea level, snow and ice are all changing in a way that's consistent with the buildup of the greenhouse gases. Extremes of heat are on the increase. Extremes of cold appear to be on the decrease. Rainstorms have gotten more intense. When it rains, it rains more powerfully, and the reason for that is that a warmer ocean yields more evaporation of moisture into the atmosphere, but in areas that don't have access to that moisture at a particular time of year, there's been apparently a greater tendency for drought simply because the soils are baking out more. As I said before, tropical cyclones appear to be increasing in intensity, although not frequency, with more Category 4 and 5 storms and less of the Category 1 and 2. And the oceans are slowly acidifying. They're acidifying because carbon dioxide, when it dissolves in water, turns the water slightly more acid than it was previously. And that's not good news for shell-forming creatures like corals, which essentially will either suffer greater dissolution or won't be able to form in the first place. And there's grave concern about what that means for the marine food chain, although a lot of uncertainty, too. We don't know the biological effects very well. So starting with here, we have it's certain that temperature is increasing. It's virtually certain that sea level has increased. It's virtually certain that ice and snow is shriveling in extent. Uh, it's, it is also likely, although not certain, that heat waves have increased and that extremes of cold have decreased. It, it's more likely than not that rainstorms have increased in intensity and that drought has increased in aerial extent. And it's more likely than not that tropical cyclones are getting more intense. And it's, it's certain that acidity has increased. So I, I, I'm trying to be careful here. Not everything we know about global warming do we know with the same degree of, of likelihood, with the same degree of knowledge. And we try to be very careful to distinguish between those things we're sure of like that Earth is warm, and those things we're not sure of, but we have some confidence in, like the changes in tropical cyclones. Mostly, if a scientist tells you he or she is sure of something, you ought to cross-check, because there's a limited number of things that we really are 100% sure of with this problem. One of the things that seems to be happening pretty surely is that the Arctic ice pack is shriveling. The Arctic ice pack is critical to Earth's climate because when there's sea ice, it reflects sunlight and it kind of helps the Earth stay cool. And as the warming melts the sea ice, it adds to the warming in what's called a positive feedback. The red, which I hope you can see, I can't see it very well from here, is the extent of the average of the Arctic um, sea ice pack in 1979, which was the beginning of satellite observations. The white is where it was in a recent year 
2003, having shrunk by about 25%. This is the curve which shows the extent, the aerial extent of the Arctic sea ice. And you notice it bounces around quite a lot, just like you know, the temperature does bounce around too. And you have to be careful. You, you can't be taken away with the drama of one of these peaks. If you were in this year, I'm sure some people were claiming, don't worry, the Arctic ice is recovering. It, when we were in this year, a lot of people got worried that the Arctic ice was about to disappear completely. But of course, it recovered here. But what it recovered to was a downward trend line. The natural level would be up here somewhere. This is partly due to the buildup of greenhouse gases in the Arctic warming and partly due to some circulation changes in the Arctic, which might or might not have anything to do with the greenhouse effect. But the trend is clear. Arctic ice is shrinking. And probably by the end of the century, if these trends continue, we'll simply not be there anymore. Uh, it's well established that mountain glaciers are disappearing. And here, each of these curves is the uh, average length of studied mountain glaciers from different areas like the Atlantic, the Alps, the Southern Hemisphere, Asia. There was a big brouhaha about a mistake having been made by IPCC on the future of the Himalayan glaciers, and it was a grievous error. But on the other hand, uh, it didn't change the picture that the Himalayan glaciers, along with the rest of the mountain glaciers on Earth, are actually shrinking in extent. They will, however, not completely disappear by 2035, which was what the mistake said. And here, this shows you the area of um, the areas of Earth that have been drying over this century. It, this is a complicated picture, which I won't try to explain in detail. It's, uh, the Palmer Drought Severity Index is one of the ways of measuring drought extent. And the blue are areas which are relatively moist. The red are areas which are relatively dry. So what this curve means is that over time, there's been a shift from relative moisture to relative dryness during this century, during the last century. And the red areas are the ones that have gotten drier. It doesn't mean they're all in drought. So, for instance, Australia doesn't mean that the whole continent is in drought. Or it means that over that period, there was a spread in the areas which were dry relative to the areas that were wet. Uh, species are moving in response to all this. This graph shows uh, the distribution of certain species in Europe um, this is the level that they used to live at in, in the period 1905 to 1985. This is the levels they lived at in the period the subsequent 20 years. You notice that if you put all the dots together, this is a subtle effect. If you, the, uh, the straight line that goes like here, the 45-degree angle line, would be where all the points would lie or equal number above is below if nothing had changed. But you see there's a subtle increase in the density of points up above the line, which, which strongly suggests that things are moving up the mountain, essentially. Species are moving to higher elevations, and that's because it's cooler at higher elevations. That's where they find the climate that they're adapted to living in. But you have to ask what happens when they can't go to higher elevations, or in the case of the polar bear, what happens when they can't go to higher latitude. There's simply no room left for them to go anywhere. I don't think polar bears are going to go extinct because they're going to die outright from the warming. I think that the last polar bears will be saved by putting them in, uh, in zoos, and, or they will interbreed with the brown bear, which is a dominant species in that part of uh, the northern continental areas, or they'll be shot as they rummage through garbage in places like Churchill, Canada. So that is the story on what has started to happen already. Now let me make a shift and talk a little bit about what we expect to happen in the future. It's very hard to project the future, and if you project the future, you're always going to be wrong. It's really just a question of how wrong you're going to be and what kind of 
guideline uh, your projections can provide to policymakers. Unfortunately, we have to project something. You just can't sort of sit there and, and speculate. You have to have some more quantitative way to do it. And the way scientists uh, estimate what the climate is going to do is by um, uh, simulations, on, uh, computer simulations using relatively complex models of the whole Earth system, which try to estimate what the effect of the greenhouse gases are, what effect that has on ap- atmospheric circulation, how water, the water balance changes between the ocean and the atmosphere, how the ice balance changes between water and ice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, with a lot of processes. And we don't understand that system completely. For instance, we can't tell you with high accuracy what would happen to the climate ultimately if you added, if you doubled the amount of carbon dioxide from pre-industrial levels in the atmosphere. The best estimates we have is that the change would be somewhere between two and four and a half degrees Celsius in global average temperature. In some sense, it's a miracle we can even make an estimate that significant. In another sense, it's uh, unfortunate that you know, the mean is three degrees, but the upper limit is, you know, 50% bigger than that, and the lower limit is 30% smaller than that. We wish we could do better, but we can't. The, and the reason we can't is because we don't understand the response of clouds to uh, changes in the greenhouse gases. If you think about it, as you warm the Earth's surface, as you warm the ocean surface, you get more evaporation, as I said. What goes up must come down, but in the meantime, before it precipitates out, it t- forms clouds. And unfortunately, clouds have various behaviors, uh, low clouds of the type we saw here today tend to have light tops. If you look at them from an airplane above, they're reflecting sunlight. So if you had more of those kinds of clouds, you'd be actually cooling the planet a little bit or you'd be uh, reducing the warming. It's called a negative feedback. Uh, but the, the wispy cirrus clouds that are ice crystals at you know 30,000 feet or so, Um, those clouds act like a greenhouse gas. So if we're going to increase those kinds of clouds, we're actually going to have a positive feedback or an amplification of the greenhouse effect. And we don't know how much we're going to increase or decrease by evaporation, one or the other type of cloud at what location. It's a very complicated problem. The physics is not well developed. And so we have a range, that's why we have this range of uncertainty of two to four and a half degrees uh, for a doubling of CO2. The other big uncertainty is what are emissions going to do? I don't know. Do you know? Do you know what kind of energy sources you're going to be using over the next hundred years? You or your children, your grandchildren. If you look back today and you try to put yourself in the mind of someone in 1900 trying to estimate what emissions would be today, that person would have to know how many people there would be on Earth, what the energy sources would be. They'd have to know about laptops and airplanes and all this junk we have that actually no one could have guessed. No one did guess. Well, it's the same problem in looking forward. We're, not, we're just as dumb, I'm sure, about guessing what the future is going to look like in 100 years. But we have to do our best. So what they do is they lock a lot of crazy scientists in the room and they ask them to fight it out. And instead of sa- settling on one answer, the scientists are humble about it. And they say, well, there's a whole wide range of emissions in the future we could have from a world where, say, this, blue, this red curve here, where nobody pays any attention whatsoever to the environmental consequences of anything. We burn up all the oil, coal, and natural gas, and we just don't worry about the consequences. And then we have very high emissions to relatively low emissions where maybe we make a transition to a world which is relatively greener in some sense, Uh, where renewable energy dominates, where population stabilizes. And so emissions, after going up for a while, start to come down. Or it could be any place in between. 
So each of these emissions futures corresponds to a bar here. This is amount of global warming. The reason that there's a bar instead of a point is because of that uncertainty of whether the climate sensitivity is in the two degree range or the four and a half degree range. So that when you put all that information together, you see that future warming could be, if we got lucky on emissions, as low as a little more than a degree, although not many people think that we're actually going to make that, to as high as six and a half degrees or anything in between. Now, a one or two degree warming for a place like Australia or the United States might not be so bad. We could adjust to most of the impacts without too much loss. Species would have a hard time because they can't adapt very well. Uh, but it wouldn't, I doubt in a one, in one degree range that it would be a disaster. Places like sub-Saharan Africa would have greater problems and less ability to deal with it. At six degrees, most of my colleagues think that's an out-and-out disaster for everybody. And we don't know whether we get something more in this end or in this end or in between. What we do know is we have no control whatever over the climate sensitivity, but we do have control over emissions. And if you keep emissions down, you can sort of wind up in the lower half of any of these curves, no matter what the climate sensitivity is. So a, a vigorous policy of reducing emissions could probably keep us somewhere in the one to three degree warming range. And even that isn't so comforting, because three degrees, if the climate is very sensitive, three degrees, well, that's a lot of warming to deal with. But that is what I think the aim of policy in general would be, keep us down here. This is the warming that occurred over the last century, significantly less than any of these projections. And this is what the warming would be. It would be pervasive, pervasive worldwide. In the decade of the 2020s, you'd see a, a gradual spread of warming in the range of, if you take the central projections of, that I just gave you, in the range of a degree or so by the end of, the next, of, of this century, you'd see warming, which particularly at the high latitudes would be very large, six, seven degrees Celsius or more. That's just a different planet, and we don't know exactly what it would look like, our ability to project exactly what the consequences are at that high degree of warming are, are just are too limited to take seriously. And you see quite, in this continent, quite a serious warming in the range of three to four degrees, even in this kind of middle scenario. So, all right, but, and this is a point that I made before, be careful. Not every decade is necessarily going to be warmer than the decade before. The reason for that is there's a lot of jiggling in the climate. So with this band of, of gray here, are projections from a whole bunch of computer simulations of what the climate could do over the next 50 years. The, in the purple, I've just picked out one computer simulation. Each of these simulations differ by making different assumptions about some of the details of the atmosphere, what the initial temperature would be, etc. And we, we just don't know which is right. But I just point this out to show you that in this particular simulation, while the trend line is clearly up and it's going to be a lot warmer, in 2050 than today, still the decade of the 2010s is, le is a cooling decade, while the decade that we just went through is a warming decade, but then it starts to warm afterwards. So be careful. Any one decade could see some slight cooling. It's small compared to the overall trend, but you will have people going out there, as there are today, saying, aha, global warming isn't happening. Well, it is happening. It's just that it's a long-term phenomenon, not a short-term phenomenon. Now, why do we put any credence in any of these projections at all? Why should you believe me? 
Um, there are at least four lines of evidence which suggest that the computer models we have are actually doing a good job and giving us some plausible representation of what the climate's going to look like in the future. And the, probably the clearest evidence of that is if you look to the past. So that you could ask, what if we had computer models in 1850 and you knew what the buildup of greenhouse gases was going to be, and how well would they have predicted the last 150 years? And that's exactly what's done here with today's computer models. There are three different colors here, if you just bear with me. The blue band is if in one of these computer models you ask it to project Earth's climate over the last 150 years, but without any buildup of greenhouse gases. Let's say there were no industry and no deforestation. The pink curve is what happens if you ask if you add in the effect of the human-made buildup of greenhouse gases, and the black line is the actual observed temperature change on each of these continents. And you notice uh, Antarctica is not here because um, the, the temperature change, uh, we don't have good projections for Antarctica, so we've left it out. But for the other six continents and for the globe as a whole, which is what this is, you will notice that the pink, the, one, the uh, simulations that include the greenhouse gas change, has a, a very good representation of what actually happened, continent by continent, while the blue, which leaves out the greenhouse gases, doesn't reflect what actually happened in the climate, particularly for the last 50 years. That gives us a lot of confidence that the models looking forward will do at least some kind of credible job. There are other pieces of evidence, the pattern of warming one sees geographically across the Earth that's produced in the models actually matches pretty well what's happened uh, the greenhouse gases have an odd behavior in that they cause the stratosphere to cool even as they're causing the lower atmosphere and the surface to warm. That's what the models say, and that's what we measure using satellite measurements. And we also have direct measurements of how much the sun and volcanoes, two factors which can influence climate changes. The sun can flicker a little bit. Volcanoes can add dust to the atmosphere, which can reflect sunlight and have a cooling effect. We know by observation how much these have been causing the climate to flicker, and those changes are much too small to explain this change in temperature. So we have a nice, coherent picture. I want to emphasize, within the uncertainty, the, that band there is pretty wide. The computers don't go smack on the black curve, but they clearly do a much better job. They clearly generally represent what the problem looks like. Now let me just quickly leaf through a few of the specific impacts that we can expect, some, some of the highlights before I talk a little bit about solutions. So there was, a, I talked about killer heat waves a while ago. Uh, heat, intense heat kills people. And it, it doesn't have to, but it does. And it's not just, uh, it's, it, it's a factor in developing countries, it's a factor in industrialized countries. Western Europe had the most outstanding heat wave in the industrial world in 2003, where it's estimated that 35 1,000 people died from the direct and indirect effects of too much heat. Uh, there's the center of the heat wave over western, uh, eastern France. If you plot out what the history of, of uh, summer climate has been in that area of Europe over the last 100 years, and then you draw a bell curve to sort of match the, uh, the frequency of occurrence of various levels of heat, you get something like this. This is the observed climate as it has been. The 2003 summer was way out here, way out in the wings of the, what the scientists call the wings of the distribution. It was a very unusual event. 
there's been some simulations which suggest that the likelihood of that event was increased significantly by the buildup of the greenhouse gases already. Uh, this is what you, what, what you get if you take a computer model and ask, well, can we reproduce what the climate should have been over that 100 years? And yeah, we do a pretty good job. The model curve looks a lot like the observed curve. So that means we trust the models up to a point to project the future. Now if you ask the same models, what will the future look like 100 years from now in Western Europe? If you add the buildup of the greenhouse gases without any future controls, you'll notice the distribution of heat looks like this. And the remarkable thing is that the 2003 summer just looks like the average summer 100 years from now. Now, that won't happen overnight. If you, by the time we get there, people will have more air conditioning. They will be wary of heat waves. The governments presumably will get better at finding people who don't know how to deal with heat and bringing them into heat shelters. But it's a problem. It means that we'll always be playing catch-up. And in this year, what happens when you get the equivalent of the once-in-a-thousand-year summer like we had in 2003? How hot will that summer be? So this is a continuous and building threat that we have to keep our eyes on. Another problem, which is something to keep your eyes on down here, is the drying that's expected to happen at kind of the low to mid-latitudes. This is um, projections of patterns of precipitation uh, later in this century. The blue areas are areas that will be moister. The brown areas are areas that are expected to be drier. And you notice that the latitude bands of much of Australia, you expect to see a drying, as you do in the southwestern United States and the Mediterranean basin, and some chunks of the developing world, which already have some problems with food availability. And, that me and the projections are, in fact, that for a warming of about one to three degrees, food productivity begins to decline in some of these areas that are brown, yellow, or even white to brown. And that's a problem because these are areas where malnutrition and starvation is already uh, endemic in some cases. In the United States, one of the uh, troubling things, and you may have this problem here, population density is increasing rapidly just in the part of the country that's expected to dry out. We don't know where we're going to get the water. Ecosystems are threatened because they have the least species and ecosystems just don't adapt to automatically to climate changes. They, they're, they're not evolved to deal with such rapid change. This is a coral reefs. Coral reefs are, are very sensitive to warming. You've got the Great Barrier Reef, which is a big, beautiful uh, ecosystem, but very vulnerable to warming. There's been a lot of work done on it. And uh, overall, it's projected that about 30% of species, of all species, are become at risk of eventual extinction. 30% of all species become at risk of eventual extinction for a warming somewhere in the range of one to three degrees. Uh, by the way, these coral reefs are also threatened by the ocean acidification, as I mentioned before. Now I'm going to uh, close the impacts part of this uh, by talking a little bit about sea level rise, which I personally do a lot of research on. I'm fascinated with the ice sheets and I've spent many years uh, studying the sea level rise problem, and I think it ultimately is the most threatening because of its pervasive nature. If you can, see, can you see the red on that screen? So the red are the areas... Well, let me back up. Uh, the, the current best guess as to where sea level may go in this century is that it, uh, most scientists think it, who've looked at this carefully think that the increase could be up to about a meter. Some think it's more, some think it's less. Uh, there's been an argument even with an IPCC about this. 
And the red areas here are the areas that would be completely submerged with a meter of sea level rise. So there's quite a lot of land area, although the definition of the slide isn't good enough. It's only suggestive of the actual problem. To be more specific, let's look at a country like Bangladesh, which is um, probably the worst case, it's, but it is characteristic of a lot of deltaic areas in the developing world. The one meter line is here, that is a one meter sea level rise would take away, just permanently submerge an area where about 10 million people now live. It wouldn't happen overnight, and the people would try to get out of there, obviously. Um, the, blue, the purple line would be where three meters of sea level rise would take you, and I'll show you later what, what could bring us three meters of sea level rise, and that's about half the population of the country. And the, the sad thing about Bangladesh, it's, it's, a, it's a country which has been struggling and sort of clawing its way upward, but it's all almost very close to sea level, and these people have nowhere to go. So if you really did take away a chunk like this, where are they going to go? When they go into India here, they, you know, even today, people get shot going across the border. This is, a, this is 150 million people packed into a very small area. It's not clear how they're going to deal with this, and they are struggling now to figure it out. But even in developed countries, we do stupid stuff like this. I'm, this is my favorite city in the world, Atlantic City, New Jersey, because it provides perhaps the best example of stupidity of coastal planning. <laughs> I am sure you have your own examples here. Uh, but, you know, billions of dollars of investment, and look where it is. Man, it's right up on the coast. And what are they going to do if there's a meter of sea level rise? I bet they're betting on it right now. They just, you know, they don't know what to do. So, you know, this is, yeah, this is a lesson in the failure of intelligent coastal planning, which becomes more and more pointed, that failure, as time goes on and the sea level rises. But the big risk with regard to sea level really comes from engagement to the ice sheets. That one meter sea level rise I gave you is for this century. And it, it assumes that not much of Antarctica or Greenland will be lost. And that's probably a good guess. But the real question is what happens in the years or decades or centuries beyond that? There's equivalent of five meters worth of sea level rise in just the western part of Antarctica called the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. There's about seven meters of sea level rise equivalent of ice in Greenland and about 60 meters of sea level rise equivalent in East Antarctica. Now, the good news is that this chunk of ice probably would stay more or less intact unless there were a, a warming, which I think is so big that even the most heedless of governments would long before have acted to stem the problem for other reasons. So I'm not so worried about East Antarctica. I am worried about West Antarctica, which is apparently inherently unstable, at least in places, like there's a little area here called the Pine Island Bay region, which is actually disintegrating as we speak here, probably in some way due to the global warming, although we're not sure. And it's been shown in models that for somewhere between a one and four degree warming, the totality of the Greenland ice sheet simply melts away. So there's an exposure here of seven plus five, do the math, 12 meters of potential sea level rise. The question is, a, will that really happen if we really let the warming go on for only a few degrees? And two, how fast would it happen? So we, we don't have a good model. We don't have uh, our intelligence about the physics of ice is very poor, believe it or not. And we are not capable at this point of really projecting what those ice sheets are going to do. So rather than do the same thing we can do with the climate of using a computer model, we have to look to the past and say, well, the last, this is the same 
curve I showed you before with the CO2 here and the temperature here, all that's different is it's flipped around and the colors are different. So here's today, and we're in a warm period. The last time we were in a warm period, it was actually slightly warmer than today, a couple of degrees Celsius. That's why the peak here is a little higher than today. And there's, here were the CO2 levels. And the reason that even with CO2 only around 300 parts per million, it was warmer, it was, had to do with the orbital inclination, as I explained before. Uh, you can ask, okay, when Earth was a couple of degrees warmer, the poles were three to five degrees warmer then because it's a higher warming at the poles. We know that, again, from the ice cores. What, three to five degrees polar warming is about what the middle scenarios show you for the year 2050 or so. What do, what do we know about the sea level back then, 125,000 years ago? Well, uh, and we just published a study on this. Others have studied this as well. It looks like sea level was six to nine meters higher. That means a big chunk of the West Antarctic ice sheet and a big chunk of the Greenland ice sheet weren't there. They were in the ocean instead. But we don't, so, you know, my thinking is that a, that a warm global warming, this is why I believe the number two degrees is too much, because a polar, war, a polar warming of three to five degrees would accompany a, a global warming of two degrees, and that's enough, apparently, to have in the past shoved a lot of that ice into the ocean, melted or destabilized it. But we don't know how fast that would happen. We don't know how many years or decades or even centuries we could sit above two degrees and not have it be triggered. We don't know whether if we go up up to two degrees and then back down, it's too late because we will have triggered it, or we can comfortably sit at two or three degrees for some time, maybe some decades, and then pull back by reducing emissions and not, and not risk a big sea level rise. What we do know is that eventually, if we cook the earth that much, we're going to have a humongous sea level rise. So when you put this whole picture together, you can sort of start to understand why the governments all of a sudden have landed on the two-degree number. This is, this dash curve is, a tr well, th this is the warming that's occurred already, the solid curve. The dash curve is sort of a median of all the scenarios if we assume the middle climate sensitivity and the middle amount of emissions. And this curve here is if we don't let Earth get more than two degrees warmer than today, and this curve here is if we don't get, let Earth get more than two degrees warmer than pre-industrial times, the governments have been obscure about which they meant when they chose that target at Copenhagen, so I show both. And then these bars are the uncertainty bands for what temperatures the various impacts happen. A lock-in of melting of the ice sheets enough to give you know, six to nine meters of sea level rise. Uh, risk to endangering 30% of species with extinction, risk of reduction in crop yields at the low latitudes in areas that can't deal with it effectively. So we see, this is uh, what I referred to at the beginning of the talk, right here, in somewhere in this two-degree range is where these risks start to build. And there are other ones I could put on this graph if I wanted it to become so complicated that you wouldn't understand it. The point is that below about two degrees, the risks seem not zero, but relatively small, but all of a sudden at two around two degrees, they start building. So there is some sense to the policy. Now, if you ask yourself, what chance, what would we have to do? And here I'm going to make the transition into the policy world. What would we have to do to avoid that kind of warming? Assuming, you know, that's a preliminary choice. There's a lot more we're going to find out. We could get lucky, by the way. Let me go back here. All these 
uncertainty bands about where the warming, what damages the warming could have. It could be that the upper ends of these bars are what the reality is, and we could actually let it warm to three or three and a half degrees. Uh, I could take a show of hands on how many people want to make that bet. Um, I don't. So, um, you know, this slightly too complicated graph shows us what kinds of emissions trajectories the globe would have to go through, would have to experience in order to avoid a two-degree warming. So at this curve down here, the lower end of the blue band, there's a greater than 80% chance of Earth settling down at less than two degrees warming. At the upper end of the blue band here, there's, I'm sorry, I think I said that backwards. At, there's a greater than 80% chance if emissions stay below here of not exceeding two degrees. But if emissions go up to here, there's less than half a chance of not busting through the two degree ceiling. So somewhere in here, a betting person who is fairly risk averse, but not entirely risk averse, would want the world's trajectory of emissions to go. And the key thing to understand here is that emissions globally would have to peak somewhere in the decade of the 2020s, no matter which your risk aversion profile is, whether it's to avoid 80% likelihood of success or less than 50% likelihood of success. And that's going to be damn difficult to do. And the reason is that the developing countries economies are growing fast, pouring out emissions very fast. It's, it's not apparent how we would turn that around in, a, in a, the course of the next 15 years or so. But the key question we are faced with there is what policies, institutions, international and domestic arrangements, treaties, could we institute? What are the general framework which could have us give us a good chance of either meeting the two-degree threshold or if we don't meet it, avoiding sitting above it for very long. And that's what I want to close this talk by discussing at a very general level. What are the policies? This rather grim photo was from New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and it underscores the importance of adaptation. It used to be that the developed countries haughtily thought that adaptation to climate change was somebody else's worry. The developing countries were poor. They were going to have the biggest impacts. We're smart. We're rich. We can deal with it. There has been episode after episode of failure to deal with climate extremes in the last five or ten years, which has convinced the developed country governments that adaptation is everybody's problem. It is likely that the industrialized developed countries will try to help. If we're ever going to have an international climate agreement, they're going to have to provide some resources to the developing countries to help them with adaptation, but we're going to have to spend money in Australia and the United States and Europe also on our own adaptation. At the Copenhagen meeting, one of the successes, the recent conference of the parties, one of the major successes was a commitment by the developed countries to uh, shell out substantial amounts of money, $30 billion in the, la in the next uh, three years, $100 billion over the next 10 years to facilitate adaptation and emissions reduction in developing countries. We'll see whether they actually pony up the money. They don't have a very good track record of meeting such commitments, but it, it helps. Even making the commitment and starting the money flow helps making developing countries willing to talk about reducing their own emissions. Uh, again, I'm going to apologize here for a U.S.-centric point of view. I don't have the, the details on what Australia is doing, although I've been hearing a uh, earful of it this week. Uh, the, these were U.S. proposals. Uh, number two thing you want to do is, uh, after you've got an adaptation plan in place, is start capping domestic emissions. In the U.S., there have been, these are all the different legislative proposals. 
this is the emissions as they have been. These are the legislative propo various proposals to bring emissions down. This is business as usual if the U.S. Senate in its wisdom continues to do absolutely nothing. And um, the point is, it's a lively legislative debate in the U.S., which has been derailed at least temporarily by the economic situation and by our discussion of what to do about health care. Uh, but there are, there are proposals ready to go for bringing down emissions, and most of them are based on the domestic emissions trading schemes. Every I don't want to advertise what Australia should do. Every country will do its own thing and probably do it quite uh, differently. There are a multitude of choices of what to do to control domestic emissions. Emissions trading is one way. Command and control, you know, sort of um, imposing regulations on energy use is another, taxes are another. Uh, every country will find its own way to approach it. The third point that needs to be dealt with um, uh, is perhaps the most important one. It can only be dealt with in the context of an international agreement or set of agreements among several countries. And that's who has to reduce by how much. This is a discussion that's just gotten going. It was also a success of the Copenhagen meeting that for the first time the developing countries were willing to actually put down numbers for how much they would, for their own domestic purposes, be willing to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Countries like South Africa, China, India put down credible or at least semi-credible numbers. The reason this discussion is so difficult is here we see the total emissions from China well, China just passed the United States as the world biggest, world's biggest emitter. It can no longer hide out behind the other developing countries. Uh, on the other hand, per capita, Chinese emissions are a fourth of what U.S. emissions are, and India's emissions per capita are something like a tenth or maybe even a twentieth, I can't remember the exact number, of what U.S. emissions are. And U.S. emissions per capita are about double what European emissions are, and I think Australian emissions per capita are even worse than U.S. emissions. Australia, Canada, the U.S. are the sort of outliers. Uh, and again, we see this bar chart I showed you before, those developing country emissions are increasing. So deciding on what the burden sharing is, what in the language of the UN Framework Convention is the common but differentiated responsibility of countries, creating financial institutions like the international emissions trading system that's been proposed and has been implemented in Europe to facilitate financial flows. This will be a very big part of it. I don't think that there's going to be a mega international agreement, as some people thought would come out of Copenhagen, for some time, but there is going to be cooperation, bilateral agreements between countries on what to do about this problem. I'm not discouraged about that part, but I actually think Copenhagen was a step forward. A fourth part of policy is providing incentives for research and development. This problem is only going to be solved ultimately. Well, let me back it down. We can make progress on this problem but by becoming more efficient in our use of energy, for instance, driving higher fuel economy cars with existing technology, or implementing more of the cost-effective renewable energy technologies which are starting to become available, like wind power, or exploiting sources of energy that we're familiar with, like nuclear, which don't have any greenhouse gas emissions. There are other problems with nuclear which we can talk about in the question period if you want. But it's an option that some countries are going to pursue, or carbon capture and storage, which is what this plant does, which captures the... Uh, this plant is, is not an electric power plant, but the idea... It, it does bury its carbon dioxide emissions. It's a gas sweetening plant or stripping plant. It, it, um, 
The idea is to capture the carbon dioxide emissions before they come out the smokestack and bury them underground. We don't know how well that would work or how expensive it would be, but the point is we need research on this. We need research on safer nuclear power. We need research on bringing the cost of solar cells down. Then there's a possibility of actually just sucking the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. It's incredibly expensive, but some people, some geniuses think they can do it. I doubt it um, at an effective cost, that is. This, this stuff, so a lot of this is deep research, deep R&D, and it will require government money to ever bring it to the point of commercialization. And you see in countries like China where there's a, a strong desire to capture the markets. There are opportunities here. The Chinese are now the world's largest producer of solar photovoltaic cells. They also, I think, are the world's largest producer of wind turbines. They're moving ahead on, to, although less rapidly than they thought, on developing nuclear power, which may, not, may or may not be a good thing, but it has no greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, there are economic opportunities here for the countries that get out ahead, and you know, a country like my own has been relatively flat-footed about this. Finally, and this is my penultimate slide, I want to say that I'm actually optimistic about this. And the reason I'm optimistic, although I think it's, we are probably going to temporarily break through that two-degree limit, is that I think the system, the economic system, the technological system, the industrial system can respond rapidly once the incentives are in place. Once the political leadership is in place and the political will is in place to actually act, changes can come rapidly. And as a micro demonstration of that, I show you U.S. greenhouse gas emissions between 1990, this is a five-year period, a five-year period, and then it's one-year periods from 2000 to 2006. Uh, uh, you, you, greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., basically it's this curve, CO2 and total greenhouse gas, didn't do anything. They were flat. This was a period when the U.S. economy grew fairly rapidly at 3% per year. The reason our greenhouse gas emissions didn't grow is because of this spike in energy prices. So with a nice direct incentive, either a cap on emissions or something that raises the effective price of energy, the system responds very quickly. If you, I didn't carry this out further because when you get into 2007 is similar, 2008, the first part of it, also similar, pretty flat. When you get to the end of 2008, you have the economic collapse, so the numbers really don't mean anything. But during a period of very robust economic growth, the economy responded, the greenhouse gas system responded, and emissions flattened. That's the way to start solving the problem. Finally, I want to um, end on a, both a down note and an up note. The down note is something that President Obama said in his State of the Union address a few weeks ago, but he was talking about health care. He wasn't talking about global warming. Quote, he said, this is a complex issue, and the longer it is debated, the more skeptical people become. I want you to think about that in light of what's happened in this country, in my own country, in the last few months. Uh, there's a burnout factor. But on the other hand, this is not a problem that we're all going to get excited about, pass legislation, then go away and forget about. It's going to require focused attention for years and decades and for the better part of this century, even if we're successful in solving it. We're going to have to live not only with the amount of warming we couldn't avoid, but the process of solving the problem. We will be learning more about the science, learning more about the technology. It's going to evolve gradually. So I think more apt may be... John Kennedy's statement in his inaugural address. I, I love the statement because it's sad but hopeful at the same time. And he says he was referring to a long twilight struggle, year in and year out, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, 
a struggle against the common enemies of man, tyranny, poverty, disease, and war itself, and I would add global warming. And I think the point of that is his realization, because he was a hard-headed realist, that, you know, you don't wake up one day and all of a sudden the world is a totally happy place. You have to focus, you have to work at it, you have to muddle through. And that ultimately, I think, is how we're going to solve this problem. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. I think it was um, one of those lessons in listening and learning. It did go a little bit over time, but I think it was well worth the time to have such an expert um, with us tonight. As we promise, it's now time for questions. There are two microphones, one here and one here. And if you have a question for Professor Oppenheimer, if you could move to the, to the microphone closest to you and we'll, we'll start. Could I ask you to perhaps hold off on statements? This is a time to ask legitimate questions of Professor Oppenheimer and um, I'm sure he will take any questions that you have. I think we have a gentleman just down the front here. Um, my name's Dermot Duncan. Um, thank you very much for your uh, presentation. Um, on the issue of policy, I, I, I know you stood off... On the issue of... Policy. Policy. Um, you sort of didn't specifically say that you'd endorse one policy in itself. In Australia at the moment, we're looking at uh, a domestic policy being imposed on us, such as insulation, rebates, those sorts of things. So, in essence, it's a picking winners um, policy... And I suppose you also the federal opposition is looking at a, a picking winners policy with a, a green fund that people tend to. Um, with, with, I suppose with your experience with the acid rain abatement project, do you view that a cap and trade scheme is probably the best mechanism to let the market operate and decide what technology is the best? Well, again, I'm going to be reluctant to make a statement about what's good for Australia, so I'll just limit it to saying what worked in the United States. Uh, the United States' experience with incentive-based approaches goes back to the late 1970s with some efforts to control local air pollution by allowing sources to trade off responsibilities. And that, that was massively expanded in 1990 to include um, the big standard air pollutant, sulfur dioxide. The problem we had was called acid rain, and we were looking for a solution to it. Um, the projections for the cost of the program before it was implemented were that it was done during using the standard regulatory approaches. It would cost something between 5 and $10 billion a year to control the electric utility emissions from our, you know, for SO2 from coal, sulfur dioxide. But when, the, when instead an incentive-based approach, um, cap and trade, just like what we're talking about with carbon dioxide was implemented, the costs were only about $2 billion a year, much cheaper, the reductions were obtained much more quickly than the law mandated because uh, um, the emitters went out there looking for ways to reduce their emissions and then sell a permit to somebody else that could make a profit out of it. And it's been robust. It's cut emissions faster and cheaper than anyone had expected. So, and, and so then the U.S. made it its policy to kind of transfer that thinking over to greenhouse gases. So it worked for the United States. I think it can work on a global basis. But it's not the only way we control emissions. We control automobile carbon dioxide by mandating fuel economy. So it's a complex structure. Whether it's the best thing for Australia or not, well, based on the experience we have, I think it's a good thing. It's working to some extent in Europe, too, on CO2. But you've got to make your own decisions. 
Good evening. My name is Peter Payne. Uh, look, I've always seen this issue as being very closely related with, to, to the energy supply issue. And you've got peak oil theorists who say we've already passed peak oil. You've got the IEA saying peak oil will certainly occur not later than 2020 or in the 2020s. Since the two major carbon dioxide um, uh, emitters are, are transport and buildings, buildings primarily coming from electricity, transport from fossil fuels, primarily oil, don't, do you see that the whole concept of facing energy depletion through oil depletion or even being replaced by algae, electricity being replaced by successful carbon capture and storage, which is more than likely to occur over the next 10 years, do you see those as being an automatic stabiliser that actually might solve or go a long way towards solving this problem for us? I don't think it's an automatic stabilizer for the following reason. First of all, I don't believe in peak oil. I think it's a wrong framing of the problem. I think rather what will happen is that as uh, traditional oil resources dry up, as we're seeing happen, people are starting to look at non-traditional oil. First it was drilling deeper, drilling at angles, using um, carbon dioxide itself to blow extra oil out of the wells. Now it's going after non-traditional oil like shale oil. In my neck of the woods, they are getting natural gas by doing rock fracturing and digging it out in places that nobody thought had any gas. So I think rather the increase in price brings out new sources, which in turn stabilizes the situation. So although the price eventually may go up, I don't see us running out of the supply. Secondly, there's enough coal underground to supply us with energy for about 300 years, and most of the carbon that's underground is coal five to ten times as much as coal than is oil or natural gas. So it's a coal problem for the long term, not an oil and natural gas problem. And you could, and what would happen eventually is they'll start making liquid fuels, fluid fuels out of coal. Carbon capture and storage, you kind of suggested it might be an automatic solution, but it's far from automatic because we don't know if it works. We don't know if... Um, the cost of putting it underground and keeping it there, and if it turns out that either it doesn't stay underground long enough in enough places, or it, that it's very expensive technology to implement, people aren't going to go for it. And there hasn't been a single commercial-scale electric power generation carbon capture and storage project implemented yet, and it's a massive failure by the governments that they haven't gotten it together to do it. So I'm not as sanguine as you are that it'll just happen. I wish it would. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed your talk tonight. I've got a question that's a little bit controversial, um, and uh, often I bring it up and it causes great debate. But um, I think we can pretty clearly ascertain that um, what your talk was saying to tonight and what climate change, climate science suggests, that climate change is indeed caused by anthropogenic means. It's human-induced. And so my question for you is, um, what, how do you think we can, um, as, a, as a world, and what sort of policy should, should be looked at in terms of childbirth, what can we do to kind of keep our population down? Well, there's a, a fair question. Um, the ultimate drivers of all of this are consumption and population growth. And there's a long-time argument about which is the more important. At the current time, if you accept the projections into the future, 
it's changes in consumption patterns. Countries like China deciding they want to be like the West, the um, the developed countries, with everybody, you know, a lot of people driving cars, for instance. Those are the patterns which dominate. But it's also true that with fewer, you know, if we manage to stabilize the population at 9 or 10 billion, which is what the projections now are, instead of 12 or 15 billion, which is what they were when I first started getting into this problem, then the job is a lot easier. It's obviously you can spread the goodies more easily among fewer people. Now, I want to say that one reason I haven't emphasized the population problem is that it's a sort of an ironic twist that in some sense, and a lot of people wouldn't agree with me, in some sense the population story is more successful than the rest of the greenhouse gas story. The projected growth in population has slowed. The reason for that is complex. There is no single answer. A lot of it has to do with programs that were specifically aimed at family planning. A lot of it has to do with women's rights and empowering women and health care programs aimed at women. Um, this, the, the idea that you, know, you didn't have to have 10 children to guarantee that one or two of them would survive into your old age has been a powerful factor, apparently, in changing uh, patterns so that fertility rates are down in most of the world and seriously down, although some would say not far enough. So that while I kind of agree with you that the lower we stabilize the population at, the better off we are, I think a continuation of serious, uh, you know, I think these are decisions that aren't just governmental decisions because I, you don't want governments telling people what the size families they have. They're sort of cultural decisions that can be assisted by government and that we are in the middle of an evolution on. So I am more sanguine that population, I won't say exactly will take care of itself, but it will become the less important part of the problem and that consumption is where the real issue is. And not just consumption crudely measured, but high energy, high greenhouse gas abating consumption. I think there is a way to not exactly have our cake, consume our cake and eat it too, but to do what we do in a greener way. Do we really have the political structures in order to uh, bring on the sorts of changes you're talking about? When most of the world's economies these days are democracies, they work on three-year terms or four-year terms, uh, they're not going to bite the bullet and close a coal mine if it means jobs in a particular electorate. Uh, it just doesn't seem to me that the political structure is there to be able to, to pr uh, produce the sorts of changes we need. You might be right. Uh, this is an experiment. We've never had to deal with such a pervasive, complex problem that reaches so deeply into the economies. We're going to have to evolve the domestic and international organizational structures and the political will to do it. But, you know... Uh, it's part of the sort of the human adventure to continually grapple with one thing after the other. I mean, the thing I keep coming back to is, and I, I'm sorry if people have heard me say this before, when I was a kid growing up in New York City, they had us periodically dive under our school desks because the Russians were going to launch bombs at us. And really, a lot, I and a lot of my friends just thought we'd never reach this age. But somehow the political and institutional arrangements developed in an ad hoc way at first, which allowed that what seemed like an impossible problem to solve with countries that didn't want to talk to each other and didn't have commonalities, we thought, to actually reach agreement 
and find ways to change the, not only their international relations, but their domestic views on what the other countries were, was like. So I'm, maybe I'm a stupid uh, optimist, but I think it can be done. And I think this problem is as big and complicated and threatening as that one. Maybe not quite as threatening, but it's threatening enough. And it will be interesting to see. I think it can be done. I don't know what to say beyond that to convince you. Yes. My name's Penny, and I'm an inventor. I'm developing a new cooking system that uses way less energy. It's eco-designed, energy-efficient, uses thin film technology and so on. I'm one of a myriad of people. I belong to an organisation that helps about 20 inventors, some of whom have wonderful ideas, on the smallish scale to reduce climate change. And we are finding that there is really only... Uh, support in policy for um, uh, government, particularly through grants and so on, for things like alternative energy and not support for, for people who are endeavouring to find um, beautiful ways to make hydrogen, for instance, uh, at very low cost, um, ways to diminish the amount of material that goes into the kitchen in every house uh, and so on. Um, this also goes along with consumption, uh, if you look at sustainability, we know that we need to reduce our pressure on the earth in terms of how much material we, we need, but we're all wedded to consumption. Do you think that we can change people's attitude to we, use, we need to use less? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because I may have given the impression that I think the whole thing is a technological issue, and it isn't. It's also what is loosely called a lifestyle issue. Um, lifestyles will change. You know, we're not going to live the same way in 100 years as we live now, even if there were no greenhouse problem. I believe in, ultimately, the incredible flexibility of human beings. And I think we are capable of making changes when necessary. And we've done so. I mean, there, you know, there's a whole list of things that humans do because they realize that it was bad to keep doing what they were doing. Uh, you know, smoking is always the standard uh, thing that's pointed to. I don't know. Do people smoke in Australia? It doesn't seem to. In the U.S., they don't anymore in general. So, um, you know, so there's a, it's been a very lively discussion of how to initiate those kinds of changes. And I don't have an answer. There's, you know, literature, huge numbers of papers are written. It goes to the issue, Sam, that you mentioned about how this is a social issue. It's not just a, a, a scientific issue. And we're going to learn a lot about that. And I think over time it will prove that, you know, once this problem does get the, um, the political willpower behind it, I think people will start to realize what they're doing that needs to be done differently. And, you know, as I said, humans are quite flexible. And I think if they realize the challenge, they will live up to it and they will find a way to deal with it. And, you know, economic incentive is powerful. Again, I'll refer to the example of China. China is getting a lead in several alternative energy areas. And one reason they're doing that, it's good for the Chinese economy, but there's a dynamic that gets underway there because once they've done it, China as a state has an interest 
in other countries reducing their emissions because they can sell the equipment to the other countries, and it makes international agreements easier. Well, it's a similar thing at the individual level. Once there's kind of a, a, a view that these new technologies have to be adopted to save the planet, you will see more people finding ways to make their own lives malleable enough so they can live in a world, for instance, where you don't have to drive everywhere at all times. I know that's a little hard to uh, grasp here as it is in the United States, but I see that as a possibility. I just can't give you the roadmap for getting there. Presentation, uh, Professor. I want to ask a question, um, probably already a very old question to ask. It's about the parallelization. How do we prioritize our tasks since there are so many problems we're facing? Like Lundberg pointed out, we're facing probably malaria, but now we have global warming. So since there are too many problems to face, how different countries should prioritize their tasks when facing those problems? Are you asking what priority should a country that's got a lot of other difficulties right. give to global? Well, I think that what you do is you look for ways to solve more than one problem at a time. For instance, I'll go back to China, uh, which uh, is a fascinating case. China kind of made a decision a couple of years ago that global warming was worth paying attention to, partly because it saw it as a threat. No country is going to do anything just to be nice guys. They have to realize that it's in their self-interest to pay attention. But when they did that, they didn't sort of revolutionize what they were doing. They also had an interest in doing something from a technological point of view because they were worried about their growing use of energy and their dependence on foreign sources of energy, as many countries are. In fact, their dependence on Australian coal, for instance. They have a nasty air pollution problem. And they want to put a lid on the amount of coal that they're ultimately going to burn. They don't have enough infrastructure. They can't build railroads fast enough to get the coal around the country. So all these things kind of conspire to move them in the direction of having a more proactive greenhouse gas policy. In some countries, that'll be, you know, it'll be obvious what needs to be done, and greenhouse gases can... Uh, controlling greenhouse gases can move smoothly with a number of other policy initiatives. Same thing in my country. The energy independence issue is important. The air pollution issue is important. We can sort of solve three things at once. In other countries, it's much less important than a bunch of other things that are going to happen. But even in the poorest countries, the cost of energy is a big deal. So finding ways to not be so dependent on in, uh, heavily energy-intensive industries, for instance, is a good thing to be doing. So that you do the cheap and easy things like you make things more efficient to begin with. In countries that really can't afford to do that, they're going to require help from outside. So, you know, you look for the opportunities is what the answer to the question is. And there is progress already being made by countries that are taking that attitude. Uh, please allow me to add it up to my question again, up to you said... Because that's exactly what people are thinking, because since the cost is too high and there's a great uncertainty, people started thinking maybe malaria is easier to solve. Like, like people in Africa are suffering so much, and people start to think maybe we should try to solve that problem first, put on our power at the top list. Well, there's no doubt about it. In the real world, things get in the way. You know, look at my country. Again, we, you know, we have a couple of other problems, like the problems with the financial system to straighten out before we're actually going to get to doing greenhouse gases, at least legislatively. But in the meantime, quietly and on the back burner, the government is putting extra constraints, forcing higher levels of energy efficiency, developing new energy sources. So while climate may not be in the front burner in the United States, there are still things being done. In poor countries, it's somewhat more difficult. 
that, you know, again, it's going to need a cooperative effort with some resources flowing from the rich countries to the poor countries. I think there's been some people waiting quite a while over here. So, um, I just wanted to ask you very briefly about the geoengineering option that's often put around. Um, I realise that can go the whole gamut from painting your roofs white to erecting an enormous floating orbital sunscreen to keep the keep the ocean keep the uh, Earth temperature cool. Now, I'm not too keen on them myself, but I was interested in: Do you think those would be a viable way? In, ex in an extreme situation where we had to solve the problems quickly, could you see some countries, perhaps unilaterally, stepping forward and trying to push those sorts of solutions, and would they work? For, for people who aren't aware of this, there have been proposals to engineer the climate, and there have, as you said, there are a different variety. The kind I'll focus on now are uh, proposals which would reduce the amount of sunlight coming into Earth in order to counteract the warming. And the question is, number one, are those viable approaches? And number two, is it possible that a country on its own would go out and engineer something? And one way this is done is by launching particles into the stratosphere where they reflect sunlight. Um, the studies of these climate engineering systems that have been done suggest that while the, you can offset the overall global warming at a modest cost, the other climate changes that accompany global warming are not offset. So, for instance, by launching particles, you can reflect enough sunlight so that the global average temperature goes back down, but you don't offset the changes in the energy distribution of Earth, which, say, can kill the monsoon season, which would be devastating. So I personally am very skeptical of those approaches, and I think what needs to be done is a, a very significant, in the you know, $10 million a year range, very significant research program, not going out and firing anything into the atmosphere, which I think is too dangerous, but computer modeling to try to get us to learn more. So I think we need to relax about it and take 20 years or so to figure out whether it would work or not in a har relatively harmless way, or whether it's worse than the threat that it's trying to uh, avoid. As far as whether a country would ever launch these things on their own, I kind of doubt it, because unless computer modeling gets a lot better, we can't predict what an intervention would do to any one country very well. So I think the risk that you'd cause a bad effect in your country is probably high enough to deter countries from actually thinking they could benefit that way. Thanks. Uh, I want to ask you about the, uh, the hole in the ozone layer, which we heard a lot about up until about a decade ago. And we seem to have had some success because it disappeared. I was uh, wanting you to comment on that success, whether that gives you reason to believe that we can achieve success with the current issues, and yeah, whether or not closing the hole has amplified the effects of uh, greenhouse gases. Yeah, dealing, dealing with ozone depletion has proven to be a success story. We, the ozone layer appears to be just sort of maxing out and about to go into a healing phase because of the controls that were instituted starting in uh, about 1990 to reduce the emissions of the ozone-depleting gases. Um, there are some lessons that can be learned from the international framework called the Montreal Protocol, uh, which was effective in getting countries to cooperate. One lesson is there was a big pot of money to help developing countries like China to not get on their own production of those 
ozone-depleting chemicals and to start using the new ones as coolants and refrigerators, for instance. Uh, and number two, there were trade sanctions in that agreement so that if the developing countries that didn't yet have the production capacity to, of the ozone-depleting chemicals decided to develop it, that none of the signatory countries would have bought their products. So that tells you that it would be interesting to have an agreement which had both carrots and sticks in it to help countries want to do the right thing. Uh, the, the non, the, where the analogy breaks down is simply that we're talking about one class of chemicals and, a, and an industry that was worth about $30 billion globally. Here we're talking about you know, something that penetrates the whole economic system. It's a much more complex problem to solve. There is no simple technological fix. So, uh, you know, within reason, we can learn some things from that experience. Unfortunately, I think we'll have to call the questions to a close. We have almost hit quarter past eight, and, um, and that's a bit over time. I'm sure Professor Oppenheim will be here for a few more minutes if there are burning questions that you'd like to ask him as we, we leave. What I'd like to do now, though, is two things. I'd like to thank you for coming along and paying respect to a scientist and listening to a scientist and engaging with really intelligent questions and, I think, um, reflecting on the science that we've heard about tonight. But most importantly, I'd like to, to thank Professor Michael Oppenheimer, not just for his lecture tonight, but for his character. I've seen um, Professor Oppenheimer in recent days deal with very difficult questions on the IPCC, which he is deeply involved in, and on the question of scientific veracity, how can we trust our scientists and what's been going wrong in the IPCC. And I um, haven't met a more generous scientist who's been prepared to say mistakes have been made, they're being rectified, and has been able to talk about the science and about how we think about this issue with some respect for the work that's been done rather than entering into a, an antagonistic um, debate with some of those that might see the issue um, somewhat differently. So I'd, I'd like to thank you for, for Thanks, that in Sam. particular, uh, Michael. We would like at some stage this year to, to bring Professor Oppenheimer back, maybe for a different kind of event, maybe um, embracing some of the liberal arts in a discussion that may get a bit more philosophical, historical, um, anthropological. Uh, there are lots of things that we can discuss and we don't often get the chance to engage science across into the humanities. So there are a number of ideas we're having about um, having Professor Oppenheimer back out here. Please keep in touch with us and, and look out for events that might be coming. Do give us your ideas. I'd like to thank the team, Meredith Hall and the team at Sydney Ideas for all their support to bring about tonight and we look forward to seeing you at another occasion and once again thank you to Professor Michael Oppenheimer. Thank you.